Super Bowl is over. NFL training camps don't get going for a couple of months, so we get a break from that. See, that's another how can I miss you if you won't go away. That's a very important thing to have in life. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? Or is it fungus? Absence makes the... I think it's fonder. Maybe it's fodder. I'm confused right off the bat. There are a number of things we're going to get to on the show today, and the Super Bowl is one of them. Super Bowl commercials would be another. The anniversary or birthday, not sure which it is, but it's one of them, of Facebook. 15 years strong today. Growing weaker? I don't know. I think so, although a lot of people still use it. What is the future of Facebook? What's the present of Facebook? We'll talk about it. How about innovations in farming? Can we get a big hand as we start the week for all of the farmers? We need to do this daily. Did you eat today? Chances are you should thank a farmer for that. Well, we have a big ag conference coming to London. It gets going tomorrow at the London Convention Center, and we're going to get a glimpse at the future of farming on London Live. We're also going to talk about maybe the future of getting around London, bike sharing. That's coming up in about 10 minutes. But let's begin with something that was discussed in one way on the Craig Needle Show this morning. We had Andrea Horvath, leader of the NDP in Ontario, talking about some leaked documents, more leaked documents, with regard to health care in the province and that changes that would eventually create a super agency, Space Force in the United States, super agency in health care in Ontario. They're the same thing in my mind. I don't like names like that. I don't like super agency. I don't live in the Marvel Universe, nor do I want to. Take your super agency and rename that. But it's what's contained in it. Are we heading toward more of a public-private hybrid? Don't know. There are allegations that could steer us in that direction. So here's what we need to do. Health Minister Christine Elliott just stood up, made some statements, and then answered just a couple of questions from reporters afterward. And there are a number of great questions that came from reporters afterward. Let's take you back right now to Health Minister Christine Elliott and those reporters and their questions. It shows here, indicates that Cabinet has already approved this, this draft document that you say you've never seen. What we are proposing is a massive transformation of our public health care system. There are many, many aspects of it to be considered, and we want to make sure that we get this right. We are continuing with our consultations. It's not been finalized, but we know from the people of Ontario the system is not working for them. When you have 32,000 people in this province waiting for a long-term care bed, when you have 1,200 people every single day receiving health care in hospital hallways and storage rooms, and thousands of people waiting for mental health and addiction services, you know there's something wrong with the entire system. And that's what we are going to fix and improve for people. Minister, it says approved. It's approved. past tense. There are aspects of this that we are considering. We are still working on it to make sure that we get it right. That continues. What I said last week is true today. We are still undergoing consultations. We are still listening to service providers. We are listening to the people who work on the front lines of our health care system. And most importantly, we're listening to the people of Ontario. Were you not there for these cabinet meetings when, when these approvals were made? Or have, have you been cut out? 
<laughs> no, absolutely. I am involved in every, I am involved in developing this transformational plan. As I told you, there are many aspects to transforming our healthcare system. Many issues that need to be dealt with and brought before cabinet. And as I told you last week, and I'm telling you again today, we are continuing with those consultations. We need to. The entire plan needs to be finalized. We are working on that every single day, and that is something that we're working on. What I can tell you we are not considering is the list of things that Andrea Horvath suggested today that we are going to be privatizing. We will not be privatizing those issues. What has been approved by Cabinet? I told you there are many, many parts to this entire plan. To make sure that we develop a plan that's going to work for the people of Ontario is going to require a number of approvals and a number of consultations, which we are still engaging in. So the system is massive, and here on one page, it, it talks about risks and service disruption and potential labor disruption. Do you acknowledge that? Do you agree with that? Is this overhaul going to be very tumultuous and put some patients at risk of falling through the cracks? No patients are going to fall through the cracks. Patient care and patient safety are my priorities, and what we are. Here? There are always issues with any kind of transformational change that you're going to bring forward, and some people don't like change. But what the people of Ontario are telling us is that we must have change. The status quo is not an option. People are not receiving excellent quality health care in all aspects of our system, and we are going to change that. We are going to improve care through our public Healthcare system. Where it says approved. Where it Thank says approved. And it's at this point that Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott leaves. So she was finished with questions there. I think we've got to look at a couple of different things. Um, reporters that were asking all about, well, this says it's in the past tense. This says approved. Forget about that. We're looking at an alleged leaked document. So how do documents get leaked? One, the people who create the documents want them leaked. That's number one. Or, number two, someone who is working beneath the creators of the document decide, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to splash this out there. And we never hear about their firing once they're caught, but that can happen. So those are the two ways the documents get leaked, unless they're stolen. And no one's accusing anything of that in this case. So when you're creating a document something like this, you're going to write it up as if it is official, because it hasn't gone out yet. So don't worry about past tense, present tense. Worry about what is in it. Worry about what is being changed. And right now, there are a lot of things that are unclear about what is being changed, what is being put in place, what could be, in a way, privatized. And Christine Elliott doesn't like that word, you could tell. There are a number of other people who don't like that word but I'm wondering, do we need more of a conversation about that word? See, we've got to look at what ties up our healthcare system. It's kind of looking at what ties up our first responders. First responders will tell you that too much of their time, if you get them in the right spot, too much of their time is tied up visiting the same people over and over and over again because they will call. And for some of them, it's simply bringing a friend to their front door. That kind of stuff has to be eliminated, but there's no way to eliminate it. 
because you can't just play boy who cried wolf. You can't just say, the wolf is here, the wolf is here, and all the townspeople come running, and then you go, ah, there's no wolf here, but I made you come. Hi. You can't do that, because that's not the way we deal with things. One of those times, that person who calls you every day may be telling the truth. So we have to look at not necessarily the crying of wolf in the healthcare system, but what we have to look at is where it is getting tied up. We have a pretty unique situation in the world in that, you know, if my elbow is kind of hurting one day, I can make a quick phone call and I can get a doctor's appointment for that. Or even better, I could go to a walk-in clinic and I could get a, doc- a doctor to look at that. And I could say to her, hey, my elbow's hurting. Can you see? And she could say, well, do this, do this, do this. Yeah. Have you been playing a lot of tennis? As a matter of fact, I have. Have you considered it might be some tendonitis? I had not considered that. But thank you for your 15 minutes of time. I didn't need to go there. And I, I'm making this up. I, have, I don't play tennis. I'm a horrible tennis player. I don't have an elbow issue at the moment. But that's the kind of thing that we have the privilege of doing. And there are people who take advantage of that, maybe to a greater degree than they should. There are others, and it's almost maybe best to highlight a guy like Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban is the owner of the Dallas Mavericks. He's a very wealthy man. And what he does for his health care is he gets a doctor to look at him monthly. He gets blood work done monthly. His idea is he kind of likes it around here on this place called Earth, and he wants to live here for a while. Now, in the United States, it's a little bit different, but he's got a lot of money. So he winds up paying out of his pocket to have his blood taken. He winds up paying out of his pocket to be checked out, because if anything does go wrong and you talk to any medical professional and they will say to you in one form or another, Eventually, something's going to get you. Eventually, something is going to get you. Nobody lives forever, and something will get you. And if you can find a way to discover what that thing is, or one of those potential things, early, maybe you get to live a little longer. You get to hang around this earth place for a while longer. We have the ability to act like that within our own healthcare system. What if we could weed out the people who are, in essence, crying wolf? What if we could weed out the people who want to have that kind of care and would have the money to afford that kind of care? Wouldn't that be making some headway? Not entirely, but these are the kinds of things that need to be looked at. These are the places where the system is bogging down. That, and yes, you look at hallway medicine, that goes back to the closure of a number of beds going over a number of years. And now this is where we are. We're at a glut where you've got a lot of people heading for the same bed. Different issues, same bed. And that becomes a problem. We don't have enough beds. Plus, we have people who are able to say, hey, I I have this issue. Can you look at me? Or we've got an aging population. We've got more and more people needing to go into certain types of beds. And everything is running. It's... Have you ever been in a, a marathon situation or a road race situation when there's a tight turn? If you have too tight a turn off the start, you get everybody running, and then if it's too tight, then everybody kind of gets jumbled up and everybody's stuck. That's where we are. 
that's the kind of stuff we need to look at. So if that's what they're doing and they've got some draft document together that says, yeah, here's the plan. As long as it gets approved, boom, it's ready to go. I don't have a problem with that. You have a problem with that? We'll talk more about this in a little while. Next up on London Live, we are going to talk with Jay Stanford. And we're going to discuss how we don't get stuck. In fact, how we become a little bit more progressive in London, Ontario. And how we can get around this city. Bike sharing. Next on London Live and Global News Radio 980 CFPL. If you were able to pick up Ontario, turn it upside down and shake it. Not much in the way of money would come flying out of the province's pockets. We don't have a lot. Not right now. We've got some issues going on. So we have the Ontario government trying to find ways to save money. And that's why we talk about health care. That's why we look at the creation of a super agency. They want to save some money. There are other places where money is, quote-unquote, being saved. And you can determine whether or not you feel that the savings are worth it. And one of them came with the cap and trade program. The cancellation of that, everybody went, well, I didn't, I didn't want that carbon tax on my gas prices anyway. So that's fantastic. I'm in favor of canceling that cap and trade program. That was, yeah, but did you look closely at the fine print to see what else might happen? There was a grant in the cap-and-trade program that was a little over $800,000, and it was there to help out different municipalities when it came to, and it's just over $800,000, I believe, in London's particular situation, but it was there for other municipalities to take advantage of and do things with with regard to transportation in their cities. Well, that's gone too. So if London was going to start a bike-sharing program or any other environmentally friendly transportation program, that all of a sudden is compromised because of the cancellation of that. The government saves money, but we lose out on some things. So is this completely gone? Well, maybe not. Joining us is a man who on London Live just a few weeks ago, when we were looking ahead at the year that would be 2019, mentioned bike-sharing. Jay Stanford from the City of London joins us. Jay, happy Monday. Hey, thanks, Mike. Good to be on the show again. (laughs) Let's talk about the bike-sharing program. You had highlighted it when we talked a little while ago, and then the cancellation of cap-and-trade means grant money is lost. How about this program? Can it still happen? I think so, and here's where we're at, Mike. Uh, As you know, we're, we're preparing a business case to go to council later this spring, and part of that business case, we were, we were going to prepare this anyways, whether we had the grant from the province or not. So you've got to prepare your business case. And what we actually have been learning over the last four months on this project is that there's been some fascinating developments in the field of bike sharing. And uh, the technology costs and a variety of things associated with the systems has dropped dramatically. So we believe that this is still a good program to continue to pursue and that's what we're going to be doing during the business case and then what we really have to determine is what those kind of systems that are just around the corner how they could roll out here in london and how we could bring this in uh, the most cost effective as possible 
Jay, anyone who has seen bike sharing in other cities can picture it this way. You have a number of bikes. They all look the same. They typically go from one docking station to another docking station. So let's say that we are going to ride from, for example's sake, York and Wellington. There's a docking station, and we're going to go all the way up to Masonville, and there's a docking station there. We can put in our money. We get on the bike. We ride all the way up to Masonville, and we leave it at that dock, and maybe from there we take the bus home or something like that. Is that the kind of thing that could be changing? That's right. Now, what you've described there is kind of the, the first-generation systems. They're referred to as docked. And that dock itself, and you've seen these in other communities, that's a very expensive asset. And by the time you bring in that dock in, the, about, let's say, about 10 bikes, you're looking at about $40,000. And you start putting these docks all around London, and you just see how the price goes up. What is happening, we have these dockless systems coming in. And these are bikes that are smart. Um, really smart, and they're driven by uh, applications on your phone, and you get into this whole system where that bike can now go to different locations and be locked up at a regular bike rack. So it increases flexibility, it removes a lot of these capital costs, and it appears to be the new wave that's now coming in. A couple of uh, communities in Canada, Kingston and Kelowna, are doing demonstration projects. There's a few in the U.S. So London might be catching this at the exact perfect time. Okay, well, that's good. Jay Stanford joining us from the City of London as we talk about bike-sharing programs and what is happening with them. So, in other words, you would track where a bike was, maybe using an app on your phone. Exactly. And then you would be able to get that bike, sign it out through your application, and uh, charging begins because, of course, this is not a free system, right? It's very much like uh, uh, you're joining a membership. Uh, from what we've seen, the prices have been reasonable, and it just provides that wonderful alternative to go to from A to B. If you're downtown over lunch and you want to go from one side of the city to the other, you want to ride up to campus or you want to ride out to Old East Village, for example. So would this be a case where you are looking for budget money in order to get something like this going and the startup cost is kind of the, the big hurdle to get over? That's what we, uh, exactly, and that's going to be part of the business case, so we're not quite there yet, so I don't know the numbers, but initially we thought it would be about a $1.6 million investment for capital alone. We're now hearing from vendors that it should be a lot less than that. Um, operating costs tend to pay for themselves. Now, of course, you know, we, we, we don't want to have starry eyes right now. We've got to really, the proof's going to be in the pudding. We've got to do more research and, and conduct our own financial analysis on that. But what we're seeing is some really positive movement. So I, I'm really excited about the potential of this coming into London. And, Mike, we want to hear what Londoners think, too. Okay. Well, we'll have a couple of minutes to do that right now. Jay, thank you so much for the time on this. Best of luck in putting everything together. Awesome, Mike. Have a great day. Take care. That's Jay Stanford from the City of London. Tell us how you think. Is this something you would use? Now, again, it does have a cost component to it. Now, are we talking about a huge cost? No, not talking huge cost, but it's one of those things that, you know, if you use an Uber every once in a while, after a while you look and you go, huh, spent 35 bucks on Ubers this month, that kind of thing. Would this be something that you could see yourself using? Because I guarantee you, last week, only people who really wanted to cycle were cycling. That took a lot. You know, anybody who was on a bike last week when it was minus 24, kudos to you for being able to do that. 
Is this something you would see yourself using? Or are there a number of things on the to-do list? This is like getting that list as the weather begins to warm. Oh, I got to paint the fence. I got to replace the eaves trough in the back. I got to paint the bathroom inside. Got to clean up the shed. Is this one of those things that, sure, it makes the list, but it's down a little ways on the list. It's number seven or eight on the things that absolutely have to be done. 519-643-2222 or even better, let me know how you feel about it by sending me a quick email. Mike at 980cfpl.ca. That's Mike at 980cfpl.ca. We'll have a few more minutes to talk about this. I'll tell you what Kingston and Kelowna are up to and how their structure works, just to give you a better picture of it. And then we're going to turn our attention to the Super Bowl. Oh, not the Super Bowl. It's so boring. Yeah, but I think we can look at it from a different perspective. I think we can make it seem like it was really, really exciting. You know how? We're going to talk with a professional punter. Think about what a punter must have thought about the game last night. There were so many punts. There was a record-setting punt. Longest punt in a Super Bowl. It was, technically, one of the more exciting things in the game. But we'll talk with a professional punter and get his thoughts on last night's game. We're also going to talk Super Bowl ads, Facebook's birthday or anniversary, whichever one it is. But Jacqueline LaBelle is next with news. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Okay, we'll get into the Super Bowl in just a little bit. But I want to know, and really, Jay Stanford asked the question too. We want to know, period. Would you make use of a bike-sharing service? Now, you can go and buy your own bike. Yes, you can lock it up. I mean, none of this costs, but you have to buy your own bike. You have to lock it up. There is a risk of it being stolen. I mean, all you have to do is go back to the video of the guy stealing a bike in eight seconds. Grinders, they aren't very difficult to carry around anymore, and... After we had looked at a video, and this was at Egerton and Hamilton, and it's a guy who basically walks up to a bike, and there's a decent lock on it, and he goes, and he's got a grinder, and he grinds through the lock, and he takes the bike away. And so I remember talking with Wayne Prince from South London Cycle. I said, Wayne, that's legit? Like, this isn't just some made-up thing? He goes, oh, no. He said, it used to be difficult when you had a big, long extension cord on your grinder. Now, everything's battery-powered. So you've got these little things. So the crooks, the criminals, they can have this stuff. So do you want to risk riding around your own expensive bike? Well, that's a question. Or could we look at bike sharing? So Kingston and Kelowna that Jay Stanford referenced, they use a company called Drop Bike. And maybe we'll talk with them this week to find out just exactly how this works. But essentially, here's what they ask of you. You download their app, and then you pay $49, and this is a one-time fee, as kind of a deposit, saying, okay, I'm not just going to be a jerk and take one of these bikes home with me. That seems to be what it's for. We'd have to ask them. But it's a one-time fee of $49. Using the bikes will cost you a buck an hour. That's it. And there are ways to get free rides and things like that. So the app kind of presents you with some incentives. So essentially what you're doing is you're looking at $49 and then a dollar an hour to ride bikes. So if you have it in your name, so if you ride it to the mall and you park it and you stay in the mall for an hour and then you ride it home, that could easily be two hours. 
So that's two bucks. That's what it ran you. And using the app, you can see where each and every one of the bikes is. And this is what is actually bringing down the cost. And so if you are to look at how Drop Bike says it, you've got people who might be spending $120 a year on a bike. That's what they'd be spending. If you are to go and buy a decent bike, what are you at? $750? I mean a good bike. If you want to buy a good bike and a good lock, $750? Bucks? So what are you saving yourself? Essentially, uh, five years. So it's five years. And how long would you have your bike? Would it be in good condition if you rode it all the time after five years? It would be, but this is an opportunity where you don't have to worry about that stuff. You don't have to worry about it being stolen. You don't have to worry about it being locked up, any of that. This is just sharing, and it'll cost you essentially 120 bucks a year. Is this something that you could see working in the city of London? Or is this like trying to say, we need to get more people on the bus? How do you see it? Let's open up the phones. 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. That's essentially how the ride sharing or bike sharing service would work. 49 bucks up front, buck an hour. They figure about $120 a year and you would get all the riding that you would ever use. Now, I think if you're using it to ride to work, that's a different story. Then you might have your own bike. Is it something that you would use, or is this something that is way down the list on things that the City of London should be interested in? 519-643-2222. You can email mike at 980cfpl.ca. We'll talk Super Bowl in just a little bit, but I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this right now. Or is this, forget it, we don't need this, is just another thing in the City of London. Uh, There's no way I would use that. I don't know if I would. I'm still trying to figure that out. 519-643-2222, 519-643-2222, email mike at 980cfpl.ca. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980cfpl. Okay, so far as the emails come in, we do not have anyone who's saying sure to bike sharing. Got one from Cheryl. Cheryl says, do they have bikes for kids or sidecars for these bikes? If no, ask me when my children move out. Got another one from Dave. Dave says, if I go cyclist, I'm going full cyclist. I want more barriers like Colburn first, and I would cycle to and from work. So bike sharing, can't see a need for it. I'm not spending two bucks a day for my ride to and from work. That would cost me far more than $120 per year. Okay, those are the first two. You can add your thoughts to it, 519-643-2222, or you can email mike at 980cfpl.ca. Would you be in favor of London starting up a bike-sharing service whereby you paid 49 bucks and then you could use the bikes anytime you wanted, but it would cost you a dollar an hour after that? Or is this just, again, trying to get more people onto public transit? And that is something that every city right now struggles with. 519-643-2222. Good idea, because let's say that this costs somewhere around a million bucks to actually put in place. I'm just pulling that number out of the air because... Jay Stanford had said they originally thought it could be $1.6 million. Now prices are coming down. So let's say we were able to get it for under a million. Under a million well spent? 519-643-2222. John, what do you think? Hey, I'm really confused on this, Mike. Who who owns these, this company or the city? And if the company owns them, why are we putting a million dollars into it? 
Uh, well, I would think the company would have some ownership of the bikes. That's something that, again, we'll try and get a company spokesperson on this week to clarify because I don't have the exact. Okay. So um, then, so then there's probably going to be annual fees. Who pays for keeping these bikes tuned up? Who that's smart bikes? Jay said so. There's some sort of uh, electronics on these things that I imagine in our climate uh, have to be, uh, you know looked after uh, on an annual basis at least <clears throat> you say a million dollars so at a dollar each and i don't know now that you say that the company's got something uh of this that that dollar goes to the city but that's a million hours that have to be rented now to pay off just to break even on that that uh that uh million dollars and we don't even know if we're getting 100 percent of that dollar the city so if this was such a great idea and it was self-sustaining wouldn't companies come in and say hey we're just going to do this london let us do it it's going to cost you nothing we're going to make a lot of money at this and your citizens are going to love it doesn't seem like companies are wanting to do this it's going to be the taxpayers paying probably the big bulk of this yeah well for no, that, we don't know for enough about overhead. this. No, we, we don't know enough about it. And again, I want to know more about how Drop Bike works, if that's the company you would turn to. That's the one Jay referenced, Kelowna and Kingston. That's the company that they have. So again, it's a $49 one-time payment by users. And that probably goes to the company. It may. And, and then, then it's a dollar an hour. And then he said the first year, the investment on this is a million bucks. So we need a million hours of rental just to break even there. Now, he had said year. it was $1.6 million they were looking at it, putting in a ride-sharing service, but that had docks and all kinds of stuff. This would be cheaper. So we got to find out how much cheaper, and that's something they were still working out. So we don't have a dollar value. I was just putting an example on it. No, I know, it but it, it's... it's like I say again, if the marketplace, if it was there and it was self-sustainable and a company could make a profit at it, they'd be lining up to the city saying, let us in, let us in. You're, you know, like I say, your citizens are going to love it. We're going to put this in. It's going to cost you nothing because we know we're going to make a bunch of money at this if it was an outside company doing this. That's not happening. <laughs> John, thanks for the call. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. 519-643-2222. All right. I'm not, I'm not convinced. I think we have to know more. So you know what? We need to hear from somebody from Drop Bike, and we need to hear from somebody who can tell us about how it's working in Kingston and Kelowna. So I'll endeavor to do that this week. We'll try and get somebody on. Let's leave this conversation here right now. Up next, we will talk Super Bowl. And if you thought it was boring, maybe it's because you're not a punter. We'll talk with a professional punter. He'll break it down for us. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. If you checked out the Super Bowl last night, what'd you think? You know the most popular answer is? Boring. The boring game. That halftime show wasn't good. I don't get, and maybe we can get into this later, I don't get how Adam Levine of Maroon 5 can't hit the notes of his own songs. That's not good. You're going to sing a song? Sing the song. If you can't sing the song, you know, maybe you've got a cold or something like that, don't sing that one. Change that up. Can't hit the notes of his own songs, but he can take off his shirt during the halftime show. Why is that? Why, why is he able to and Janet Jackson not able to? Yeah, we'll get into that a little later. Right now, let's get a perspective on this because maybe the game wasn't boring. Maybe we're just looking at it from the wrong perspective. Zach Medeiros is a kicker and punter for the Toronto Argos and joins us now to discuss... Super Bowl 53. And Zach, there it is. Most popular word used to describe Super Bowl? Boring. But being a punter, we should probably expect you have a different perspective, right? I loved it. 
It was a great game, full of great defense, specialists got involved. I know there's two missed kicks during the game, but there's still two clutch kicks. You know, the one at the end, obviously, with uh, Goskowski making that 41-yarder to kind of put the nail in the coffin for the Rams. And then you had Greg Zerline tie it up with a 53-yarder. Um, but other than that, you saw a great display of punting, lots of punts pinned inside the 20. Um, yeah, so honestly, I actually enjoyed the game because obviously, you know, when, when you hear about specialists, you don't really get to see the, the full effect of them unless, you know, the game's on the line for, for a field goal. But in terms of punting, they're not really talked about unless it's like a 70-yard punt. As to, you know, it feels like anyway. So great to display punting, great defense. I enjoyed it. At one, I don't know what your thoughts on it, Mike. But. Um, you know what? I, I love watching championship games no matter what. And just seeing how, you know, Bill Belichick is is going to deal with the L.A. Rams. We'll get to that in just a minute and, and how maybe he took away the thing that they like best. But I want to stick with punting for a second because we had – the two broadcasters on the main American feed on CBS, Jim Nance and Tony Romo, and at one point they were talking about who the MVP could be of this game, and they were bringing up Ryan Allen, who's the punter for New England, and Johnny Hecker, who's the punter for the LA Rams, and it was legitimate. Those two guys had maybe done more than anything else, and those two guys have an amazing connection that you know about. Yes, so this is still... Beyond belief for me. I, I can't believe this guy. It'll probably never happen again. I hope so, or I hope not anyway. So Ryan Allen and uh, Johnny Hecker actually were both walk-ons. That's right, walk-ons. They weren't offered any scholarships and both walk-ons at Oregon State during uh, the 2008-2009 campaign. And then Johnny ended up beating out Ryan Allen for the job. Um, obviously, you know, Johnny Hecker moved on to the NFL, became an All-Pro, and then Ryan Allen moved on to Louisiana Tech and became a two-time Ray Guy Award winner, which is uh, given to the best punter in college football. So, and now you have them both playing in the, in the Super Bowl, and they're both NFL, you know, All Star caliber punters. It's just crazy how it happens, how they weren't offered. I, I just don't understand it. But good for Oregon State for getting them as walk ons and saving a bit of money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We are talking with Zach Medeiros, who is the punter and kicker of the Toronto Argos. So, how fitting is that that he's able to give us insights on a game that may have featured more punts than any Super Bowl? Going, I haven't looked up the stat, but I can't imagine there being any more punts anywhere else. Now, let's talk about the game itself. Did we see this game brought to kind of that that defensive? Let's give absolutely nothing because that. That's what the Rams tend to do best. If they can get running and gunning, they're hard to stop. Did Belichick take that away? Did we see that? He did. He really did. And if you remember a few days ago, I, you know, you asked me what the Rams need to do in order to even compete in this game. I said, you know what? You know, we, we watched the New Orleans games, and they, you know, against the Patriots, they uh, can't afford to get behind the eight ball. Like their defense has to come out, and they need to be sharp. And they did that, I felt, for most of the game. They were, you know, they they – they held the Patriots to three points at halftime. Third quarter, they again, they, they did a great job. It was, but it was the offense. They, this is all pending that the offense didn't, you know, was going to put up points for them. And that just didn't happen. And, I mean, geez, what do you got to say about Bill Belichick? I mean, you know, the Rams were predicated, like you said, with the running gun. Like, they, they got to that game based off their run game and the play action. And I felt like they, they tried to change that up because it just wasn't working for them. But my hat goes off to Bill Belichick. I mean, no one came Game plan's better than that guy, and it showed. I mean, holding the Rams at three points, geez, that's impressive. That 
made for a Super Bowl victory for the New England Patriots. They're sixth, and let's face it, in free agency in a total of 18 years because that first Super Bowl that they won, and we got to mention a kicker again, Adam Vinatieri winning it against the St. Louis Rams at that point. Now things kind of come full circle. In 18 years, nine Super Bowl appearances and six victories. What kind of perspective should there be on that? Best of all time. I mean, no, no one's ever in, in our lifetime, Mike. I don't think anyone's ever going to do this again. I mean, it's been 20 years. They made nine Super Bowl appearances. Jeez, I'm on, at this point. I'm just at a loss for words. I mean, it doesn't matter who's on that team as long as Brady and Belichick are on the, and that that same organization. They always have a chance. I don't care what chips fall on that team. Um, and it showed, you know, that 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 game turned into a chess match at the end, right? It was just, you know, it came down to coaching. You know, the Rams. I felt. I uh, kind of got a bit, bit sloppy with the time management, and no one, you know, is, is better time management than Bill Belichick. So, I mean, when it's that tight of the game, you really have to give your players every advantage to win that game, and they, they use their time it's way too early, in my opinion. And it showed, and I think everyone knew as soon as Goff threw that interception with four minutes left in the game, I feel like everyone had a feeling, this is it, because that, that was the only real drive they had going up until that point. And he forced that one throw, they got the interception, and you knew Belichick was just going to milk the clock. If, if we look at game planning in a normal week, this way Bill Belichick gets two weeks and he can usually know more about you than you know about yourself, but can you take us through how intensive game planning is for one singular professional football game? Oh, it's, geez, I don't think anyone watches more film than that guy does. It's just, I feel like when you have the game plan against Bill Belichick, you have to add in a new package. And if you look at the years past when New York beat them in the Super Bowl, when the Eagles did, they always added in a few plays that no one else really ever saw them. They, they were just working on that that week. You know, the Eagles had the one with Nick Foles last year where they, they had like the throw ended up going to him in the end zone. That kind of caught them off guard and that, and that cost them points with the touchdown. So I always feel like you need at least three or four plays. Whether it's a trick play or just, you know, plays your offense doesn't typically run. Um, to kind of catch them off guard, and the Rams just didn't do that. I mean, and, and at the same point, they they played it into his favor. They they got away from what they, they they do best. Their bread and butter was the running gun. They they kind of stopped doing that, and it just worked in the Bill Bill check stuff in his hands. There, he just again lost for words. I just I hate seeing it, Mike. Honestly, they they do it every year. I just I want to see something new. Well, who knows? Maybe the new will be the fact that these two continue to do it. The fact that you can be in your 40s and who knows how long Bill Belichick's going to continue to coach, but he can keep doing this. Maybe maybe that's the new we get. I don't know. I mean, maybe this has come full circle now and you beat the Rams the first time around. You beat the Rams the second time around. Maybe this is the dynasty, the end of the chapter. It was, it was almost nice seeing Tom Brady hold off the reporters at the end of the game and just talk to the guys he wanted to talk to, hug Julian Edelman, hug Bill Belichick, and and do that instead of yeah. just going right to the interviews. Yeah, and you know what? The, the other crazy stat, too, that I want to bring up is uh, people were on the Rams about going 3 for 13 on third downs, and they, they had to do better there. I mean, especially with the opportunities that the Patriots left them in pretty much the, the entire game to kind of get back into it. 3 or 13, you got to do better. But the, the pass for 3 and 12, people are like, oh, well, they're very similar. Well, the difference is, Brady and Belichick have been there nine times, and now one six. And Jared Goff, Sean McVay, that was their first their appearance. So that's the difference, the experience. And you knew at some point, if you weren't, if you weren't going to cash in on points, 
you knew us, you know, the Patriots were, 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 were going to have a drive. They're, they're, they're going to put points in the end zone. It was, it was going to happen. It was only a matter of time. And when they did, you had to be able to cash in. And the, the following drive obviously got through the, the interception at the end. And that was, that was it. That was the end of the game. Patriots, Super Bowl champions again. Zach, thanks for breaking this down for us. Hey, no worries. Thank you for having me. Zach Medeiros, punter of the Toronto Argos, who helped us out on Friday, helps us out today. See? Punters loved it. They thought it was a fantastic game. What more would you want? Look at all those punts. So thanks to Zach for helping us to break down, not just the punting, but the entire thing. The one thing we haven't talked about, the Super Bowl ads and a CRTC decision made it possible to watch the American commercials in about 20 minutes from now. We will be joined by someone who watched them very, very closely, and he'll break those down for us. We'll also celebrate, is this worth a celebration, recognize the birthday slash anniversary of Facebook turns 15 today, back in the dorm room of Bill Gates and the other guy who I know, Mark Zuckerberg, yeah, back in the dorm room of Mark Zuckerberg, and the other guy whose name I always forget, yeah, what's, uh... I'll look up his name. He he needs some sort of needs some sort of pat on the back, right? We'll talk about it. Next up, news with Jacqueline Bell. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. Facebook is turning 15, or has turned 15. Not sure what time of the day it was born. Okay, I looked it up and I was way off. There are five guys who actually participated in Facebook. The guy who I think tends to be thought of as the one who got the shaft is Andrew McCollum. Everybody else has gross earnings next to their name. Eduardo Saverin is worth an estimated $9.1 billion. And Dustin Moskovitz is worth an estimated $1.9 billion. And Mark Zuckerberg is worth $55 billion. And then you've got Andrew McCollum. And he's number one hard to find. And number two, it doesn't look like he has any kinds of billions of dollars. But he does have some other company that he's trying to promote these days. So I think he's the guy that wound up seeming like he got the shaft. Facebook was created at Harvard. It was created not to do what it's doing now, but then all of a sudden it took off. Mark Zuckerberg, he's worth an estimated $55 billion. But the company has not been problem-free. Now there are allegations over leaks and what's being done with your information. So what do we use Facebook for these days? Well, a lot of people will use it to post pictures of what they're doing or where they've been or of their kids. And it's a great way to show those things off. It's a great way to throw out a topic and have people respond to it. There's a lot of different uses for it. Where is it now, though? What What is it being used for, and where could it be headed? Joining us right now is Professor Amy Morrison, Associate Professor of English at the University of Waterloo. And we've talked Facebook before, but now that it's a happy birthday or happy anniversary, it's time to do it again. Professor Morrison, thanks so much for being on London Live. I'm so glad to be here. Is it an anniversary? Is it a birthday? Is there a cake? (laughs) 
Well, I'm sure Facebook will have created one of those animations, you know, that you get when it's your birthday or when you have a friend anniversary, right? And there'll be like some <laughs> kind of graphic that's going to pull profile pictures from all over the place in algorithmic celebration. That's Yeah, that's very fitting. That sounds good. Not as tasty as a cake, but I can understand what they're up to. Can you understand overall where Facebook sits in our grand scheme of life right now? Where would you pinpoint it? Facebook has become uh, kind of a default communication infrastructure for many people. So when it launched, it was you know, really restricted to students registered at elite American colleges that had educational institutional addresses and needed to be invited. And now Facebook is more organized around getting the entire world to subscribe to its service and in that way make itself indispensable to event planning, uh, to collecting information, to um, sharing photos with people, to staying connected in, in messages and images. Facebook is trying to be our radio, television, telephone, letter writing service, text message, and everything else all rolled into one. And it's sometimes said, and this goes in the restaurant industry especially, if you try and be all things to all people, you sometimes wind up being nothing to anyone. Are they pulling this off? Well, I mean, they're pulling it off in the sense that they have almost attained a sort of monopoly status on social communication among um, many, 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 many people, right? I think that's kind of the goal is maybe not to have the most delightful experience, but to be not just the biggest game in town, social media-wise, but sort of the only game in town where you can assume that everybody has an account, right? And in that way, it, it becomes less about making a really wonderful experience for people and a little bit more like everybody has to be signed up for Facebook because so much of our real lives can't take place without the kind of communication affordances of Facebook. And so we, whether we like it or not, we all sort of have to be on it. Professor Amy Morrison from the University of Waterloo joining us. Did Facebook just come along at the right time? Was this kind of a lucked into making it work, Mark Zuckerberg and friends? I think Facebook has been very canny about shifting directions when required. So Facebook sort of came in the sort of Friendster and MySpace era, and you're like, who and the what now? Because we don't use those sites anymore. So early on, it achieved a kind of cachet and popularity as a sort of fad because it was restricted to young people uh, and young people at elite institutions. And it sort of like, you know, became the place to be. And then as it expanded a little bit more broadly, people felt lucky to be included in the expanding circle of invites um, to Facebook. And it was all about goofiness. And there was very little you could do there. It was supposed to be really private and no one was supposed to know you were there. But as more people joined, Facebook sort of shifted its tactics, right? It, it became became, um, you know, a little bit more about constant updating. It became about, you know, streams. It became about photo storage. Facebook started buying up competing services that might detract from its market share, right? So buying messaging services and buying Instagram and then making a big push to become a global communication company. And now it's essentially less of a social media company and more of a data collection and analytics company, right? So if Facebook was originally made to kind of amuse Mark Zuckerberg's friends so they could decide which girls were hotter, right? Now it's more a very big business 
um, that creates targeted advertising profiles. And that's kind of, that's the biggest shift. It's really changed with the times for that. We're talking about Facebook on their 15th anniversary slash birthday with Professor Amy Morrison, Associate Professor of English at the University of Waterloo. You mentioned data collection, and when people hear the name Facebook and the words data collection, sometimes they get their backs up a little bit. Facebook has gone through those issues. Where does that kind of thing sit now? Well, I think we're kind of potentially at a moment of reckoning or a moment where we just become overwhelmed at the sheer scale of the issue. I mean, as a sort of monopoly in the communication space where many people are sort of like, I don't have time to read all of my terms of service on Facebook. There was a piece in the New York Times this weekend that said if if we read all of the terms of services for the things we agree to in a year, it would take 76 days (laughs) to read all of it, right? So instead of consenting we're more like meh, whatever, at the same time as we are kind of upset um, when we get really targeted things that, that feel invasive. Like there was a piece, I think the CBC covered this week, of a woman um, you know, who had let it be known online that she was pregnant and suffered a miscarriage and was receiving you know, uh, baby food in the mail from her information having been sold from an email marketing list to a series of marketing companies, right? So um, it can be a little bit creepy sometimes to be confronted with this incredibly precise sorts of advertising that make it feel like Facebook must be spying on us. But of course, they're just really, really good at processing the huge amounts of data we shed about ourselves all over the internet and then turning that into profiles um, where we get sold. And and as an individual, it's really hard to shift that for yourself. Um, But some of our regulators do not really seem to be competent to understand the social media universe we're we're in. So that's kind of where we're at now. We don't like it, but we don't really feel there's anything we can do about it. One last thing, and that is, in the future, it's difficult to tell what direction things are going to go in. But do you get the sense Facebook has a secure footprint on this earth? Well, I think it's really big in a lot of places now. It's going to lose a little bit of its cachet in North America, I imagine, even as it makes inroads um, in the developing world and in the global south, because teenagers really don't use it anymore. Yeah. That's the beginning of the end for Facebook, is once the teenagers abandon it, and it's just our aged relatives and our bosses and coworkers, (laughs) it becomes a lot less cool really fast. The clock is ticking, but like you say, they did buy Instagram, so uh, they still have their eggs in the basket because the teenagers, they tend to like the old Instagram. Their Instagram egg? Yeah, they got that. They got that. Well, (laughs) then I don't think we're free of Mark Zuckerberg, and congratulations to him and his buddies for what they were able to do oh so long ago, if by accident, if on purpose. Uh, Thanks so much, Professor Morrison, for all your insight. Well, thank you. Have a great day. You too. That's Professor Amy Morrison. You can follow her on Twitter at DigiWonk, D-I-G-I-W-O-N-K. Did you catch the American commercials from last night? If you didn't, during the Super Bowl, and this this was always a thing we were deprived of, and now the CRTC has made a change that allows you to watch the American channels and the American commercials come flying on through. Last night was kind of disappointing, if you look at it from that perspective. It wasn't even kind of disappointing. There really wasn't the same thing. Where were the horses playing football? Where where was the, the unique stuff? All it was was movie stars and or movie trailers, it seemed. We're going to break down the Super Bowl ads of 2019 with the help of Dr. Charles Taylor, a professor of marketing at the Villanova School of Business 
He's next on London Live. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Super Bowl ads. We found out on Friday that they were going for roughly $175,000 a second. Not sure if you bought one to promote your company or maybe your backyard barbecue this summer. I didn't see it if you did. $175,000 a second, which works out to over $5 million for 30 seconds. Is that why we didn't see that many that were as interesting this year? Where was Terry Tate, office linebacker? I just like watching that. Sometimes I'll call that up just if I'm having a tough day. You know, you watch an office linebacker take a couple of people out, you feel better. It's a better day. We didn't have that last night. So what exactly did we have? Because... We get the whole hum, the most popular description of the Super Bowl, thanks to the 13-3 to final score was boring. The halftime show was called boring. The commercials have been called boring, but were they? Dr. Charles R. Taylor is a professor of marketing at the Villanova School of Business and joins us now to talk Super Bowl ads. Dr. Taylor, thanks for taking some time for us on London Live. Sure, sure Mike. My pleasure. Let's uh, look back at, at your thoughts, because you have looked closely at Super Bowl ads before this year. How would you describe the crop? Um, I, you, know, pretty, you know, pretty average, like, like, like you said. I don't think there were a ton, um, you know, that could be regarded as a classic or, or anything like that. But, I, you know, I do think some, I, I do think at least a limited number of them, Worked uh, worked pretty well for the companies. This was very much a risk-averse year on the part of the advertisers. And why do you think that was? Um, part of it, well, you know, more of the advertisers are trying to use corporate social responsibilities in an effort to appeal to, you know, to millennials. And I think the advertisers are figuring out, as, as just happened with Gillette's online ad, that if, if you cross over into political territory, it, it gets risky because, pe- you know, people see the ads through the lens of their own experience. So it's, you know, it, 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 there was the, the Dodge Ram ad for using Martin Luther King last year that a lot of people liked, but it offended other people. So these, these advertisers have big target markets, and they're very, being very careful not to alienate. We are talking with Dr. Charles Taylor, professor of marketing with Villanova School of Business. Interesting to hear you mention the millennials because we've seen in, say, a Budweiser ad before, horses playing football, and there's been a lot of stuff to it. This time around, they wanted to tell us that they used wind power to make their beer. Yeah, the, the, the thinking there is that millennials, um, who tend to be more value conscious and in a lot of, ca- lot of contexts less brand loyal, um, not every context, um, but the, we also know that millennials tend to say that they'd be supportive of brands that are socially responsible. So we're seeing a lot of brands try to get that across. Some, I think, in this Super Bowl with excellent success, whereas Budweiser, I, I think, was a little bit middle of the pack on that this time, and they're usually a standout um, among the advertisers. If there was a winner in all of this, did you see an ad where you went, you know what, that company did itself a favor even though they spent a lot of money to do it? 
you know, a, a couple. I think the Amazon Alexa ad was liked by just about everybody, and Amazon seems to be able to keep putting out ads that that people like, but also reinforce um, the the value of the product. I did think the, uh, the you know Bud Light is in a tough position with what they can advertise, given the growth of of microbreweries. Um, you know, with better tasting, tasting beer. You know, when I was a when I was a kid in Detroit, you know, we loved we loved getting Canadian beer from across the border because <laughs> the U.S. beer um, the quality was so lacking at the you know at that time. But you know, now there's all these microbreweries, so I think they did an effective setup by by having one ad where they said they weren't using corn syrup and their major competitors do, but then. Um, in the next ad, having the dra- the Game of Thrones dragon swoop you know swoop down into a stadium and wipe the whole thing out essentially, think you know really really memorable, and in the context of what they can do for a brand like that, I think it was pretty good. Well, there are going to be winners and losers in that way every single year. There are going to be those commercials that are remembered. That's just the the art of advertising. But if we look at the amount of money that is spent, it wasn't too long ago when people would gasp and say, a half a million dollars for 30 seconds, that's an awful lot of money. Now, by all accounts, we've bridged the $5 million gap for 30 seconds in a Super Bowl commercial. What do you see with the dollar value? Yeah, you know, it's a, it 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 really depends on the on the goal um, of of the advertiser, Mike, because you get some, you know, you you get some companies that are trying to boost awareness through the you know through the Super Bowl, like GoDaddy for years did that really effectively. Then their awareness was built. Then it was time, um, you know, to move on. Some of these brands like M and M's or Mr. Peanuts are trying to keep their name out there. Um, in a pleasant way. So if it's a, it, my take on that is a good ad can definitely pay off, can pay back the five million. But a, a bad ad, or what you know, I wonder about what T-Mobile did, taking out four ads at at more than five million a pop, um, and and not. I, I think Bud Light used that multiple approach probably more effectively than T-Mobile did. And sometimes they will use those to tell a story, as as Bud Light did. Can you take us into the minds of some of the the boardrooms as to how much time must have been spent in how to do it and what they should be doing? Yeah, well, they you know they they're, they're they're really trying to put their best foot forward if they take out a Super Bowl ad. They know the whole world is watching, so they're focusing on a goal that makes sense for them. And like in some cases with you know Microsoft's We All Win ad, I, I thought was a really you know wonderful ad focusing on children um, who can't otherwise play video games getting to do so. They're reinforcing ads that they've run you know that they've run before with that with a goal of corporate reputation. You know, in in some other cases, you know the the brand might be trying to get across a pleasant image. You know, Hyundai's Jason Bateman elevator ad was one of the ones um, that, uh, that that did pretty good and was probably carefully planned because they had done a social responsibility ad. But, Mike, one I'd, one I'd call your attention to that I think was, um, you know, pretty pretty disastrous was the Mint Mobile Chunky-style chunky milk ad because they were, they were clearly trying to get attention there 
so people would know that Mint Mobile provides lower internet uh, costs. But the ad was the, the the grossness of the ad with the chunky milk. I think overshadowed anyone remembering that it was Mint Mobile. So I really feel like that was a miscalculation. Yeah, and that's got to be tough. You get this great idea, and to you it's a great idea, and then people remember, oh, that's the Chunky Milk one. What were they advertising? I don't know, Chunky Milk? And that's where it stops. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I mean, how many people can remember that the company was Mint Mobile there? (laughs) Well, Dr. Taylor, thank you for helping us to break down the ads and what happened last night. And it's uh, it's good to know that even someone with an expert eye is also saying, you know, it was an average Super Bowl ad collection. Okay, my pleasure, Mike. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Dr. Charles Taylor, professor of marketing at the Villanova School of Business, pays close attention to Super Bowl ads. And even he said, eh, you know, it's it's one of those average years. They don't necessarily make you laugh. But I, I'd forgotten about that Microsoft one, and that was a great ad. And that was long. I think that was about a 60-second ad where they took a boy who had a pretty rare genetic disorder, and he was in a wheelchair but loved video games, and... They show that there were adaptive controllers that Microsoft had created that would allow him to play Xbox online with his friends. And at one point, they're talking with the boy's father, and uh, he says when he's online playing, he is truly just like everybody else. And he had tears in his eyes as he was saying it. It was a very powerful spot. I guess we go in looking to laugh. I go in looking for Terry Tate office linebacker, but you've got to take it for what they're actually trying to do. And I'm not being advertised to if they're going after the millennials. That's not me. (sighs) We get old so fast, don't we? Coming up, we'll talk about something coming to London and something that keeps us alive each and every day. If you thanked a farmer today, please do that. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. This is London Live. It's brought to you by our friends at Winmar, your restoration specialists. If you've got water leaking in your basement or any kind of little things that aren't going right around the house, make sure you give them a call. Even if you're doing some renovations, they can help you out that way, too. Let's talk about something I want to draw your attention to just very quickly. It was in Forbes, and I'm not sure what to make of it. The Jerusalem Post is quoted in this, and it claims that there is a company that is called Accelerated Evolution Biotechnologies Limited, AEBI, was founded in 2000, and it's located in Israel, and the chairperson of the board of Accelerated Evolution Biotechnologies Limited says, quote, we believe we will offer in a year's time a complete cure for cancer. And that kind of caught my eye, so I looked into the story, and I I read it a couple of times, and I don't know what to make of it, because you do have other respondents to this saying, eh, not sure it's quite that easy. But what they are looking at doing deals with basically cells that are going wrong and not, okay, well, hey, we'll treat lymphoma this way, we'll treat breast cancer this way, we'll treat colon cancer this way. It's different. It's it's kind of an attack on everything. But they claim that within a year, they will have it. Why is this coming out right now? I'm not sure. Because you always have to look at those sorts of things. If there was, as 
was spelled out, a complete cure for cancer, somebody would step up and say, ta-da, here it is. Here's the complete cure for cancer. Why would you say in a year's time we will have this? Is this so people will look to purchase a lot of shares in AEBI? Maybe. Is that the cynic in me? Sure it is. But you wonder. Um, Len Lichtenfield is uh, a chief medical officer with the American Cancer Society, and they asked him about it, and he said, quote, It goes without saying, we all share the aspirational hope that they are correct. Unfortunately, we must be aware this is far from proven as an effective treatment for people with cancer, let alone a cure. If you want to read it, what I'll do is tweet it out. And that way you'll be able to see exactly what they are talking about. But it's out there in a year. Do we start the clock? Do we put it down on a calendar to see whether this is true? I'm more inclined to side with Len Lichtenfield of the American Cancer Society and, uh, and wade into this cautiously. But, hey, we can hope. Let's take a break. Up next, we'll talk about farming and the future of farming. How about robots zipping up and down rows of crops, picking those crops? Is that futuristic in 20 years? Maybe we'll see something like that. Or could it be, oh, I don't know, within the next five? We'll ask that question. We'll find out where farming is headed. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. If we look at the future of farming, we don't have to look very far. In the next couple of days, it's going to be here in London. It's going to be at the convention center. And right now, we get an opportunity to maybe get a sneak peek on what precision farming is all about and some of the innovations that exist and how farming is operating in 2019. Joe Dales is the vice president and co-founder of Farms.com Limited. And Precision Farming and their conference comes to London tomorrow and Wednesday. Joe, how are things? Great, thank you very much. Can can we say thank you right off the bat? Because we do talk on London Live about the fact that without farmers, uh, we're in a bad way. So first up, thanks for what you do. And next up, what you do is going through some pretty unique things in 2019. And they're going to be shown off in London. Uh, farming isn't just put a seed in the ground and wait for something to grow anymore, is it? You know, it's it's becoming a very high tech and innovative industry, and you know, our, we're lucky we're right in the heart of uh, some of the best farmland and best farmers in the world. So, innovation is part of uh, how they operate, and so we get to celebrate a bit of that, and hopefully, through sharing uh, ideas and learning, um, you know, they can adopt some of these new technologies to be even more productive. And and yeah, it is pretty easy to get up in the morning when you feel like you're helping feed the world in a small way. Let's begin with AI, which are mm-hmm. a couple of letters that go together and they uh, yep. obviously stand for artificial intelligence. But mm-hmm. when we look at AI and farming, where's that being focused these days? You know, it's, it's really exciting times because uh, everything, you know, everything now is, is comprised of uh, including sensors in it. So it could be uh, a sensor in the ground that's detecting, you know, how much moisture is there or how much fertilizer. And so all these sensors are gathering tremendous amounts of data 
And then the AI basically crunches that data and helps the farmer make decisions. Do I apply a little bit more fertilizer? Um, what's going on in my, uh, in my fields? And so it's very exciting. Uh, we're still in the early stages of uh, uh, developing the software and the systems. But, you know, when you see it being developed in other sectors like the financial sector, you know, it's going to quickly come to this enormous industry called agriculture and, and hopefully help farmers make better decisions and be more, uh, be more efficient. Joe, efficiency. How often does that come up in farming? You know, the, the, most of our farmers today are larger than, uh, than they've ever been, and so efficiency and productivity basically has to be a strategy for most farmers. You know, they need to get more done with less time and, and less resources. So efficiency and productivity, I think, has got to be a strategy. And some of these great new innovation software and tools, um, even the GPS and the auto steer, you know, helps a farmer, you know, be more productive. So I, I don't think, I think if you talk to almost every farmer or agribusiness, um, you know, they know they need to be more productive. So it's important. We are talking with Joe Dales, Vice President and Co-Founder of Farms.com Limited, and we're talking about the Precision Agriculture Conference, which begins tomorrow and runs through Wednesday at the London Convention Centre. And we're kind of looking at where farming is headed. Joe, in terms of, of getting farmers into the industry can that even happen anymore where someone says, you know what I'd like to do? Uh, I've been living in uh, a condo in North London all my life with my parents, but I think I'm going to be a farmer. Can that even happen anymore? Yeah, I think it's important that we, we try to find some of those on-ramps for people to get into to agriculture. So I guess if you're a young person and you're interested in technology, you can look at some of the educational programs. Even Fanshawe now has quite a few agribusiness, uh, ag technology uh, uh, programs there. Um, so I think if you're very young, look at it as a career because, you know, frankly, people are going to want to eat for a long, long time. And so it is a pretty interesting industry. And then there's always new technologies and new crops and new products emerging and new opportunities. And, you know, we're blessed in Ontario to have this great farmland and, and, a, and a decent climate. And uh, we can pretty much grow just about anything, especially when you look at the greenhouses and the, the technology there. So I think, you know, you might not get into a, a large dairy or cash cropping operation just because it's so capital intensive right off the bat, but you might get into a, a market gardening uh, retail operation or something like that. So if you are passionate about, you know, farming and agriculture, there are ways. And I, I encourage you to go to things like the Western Fair Farm Show and and learn about it. And that's probably the first step is is learning and education and then keeping your radar on for uh, an opportunity. Joe, when you look at some of the things that are going to be shown off at the conference, what is it you look at and say, wow, that's uh, that's pretty wild? You know, there's, uh, there's going to be some robots there that, uh, you know, they're smaller um, and they're going to go up and down fields. They're going to be, you know, sensing certain things, I think, in the first stage. But We've got uh, uh, some of the researchers are going to be talking about robots that are going to be actually, you know, picking things like cucumbers. So I find those kind of interesting, and they're maybe not as far away as we think. Um, everybody always gravitates to the, the big John Deere tractors and the combines and stuff like that, and those are very interesting, the, the level of technology 
and the software and the systems that are being uh, deployed in some of those some of those bigger uh, pieces. So, you know, it's it's just really a fascinating time. And then I think the, the 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 thing that's really interesting to me is, you know, the software and the systems and everything from satellites and UAV drones to fly over crops to detect uh, um, pests or weeds, um, the the stress the stress and the strain on the crop. You know, there's just there's just almost uh, you know it's almost mind boggling the number of new products and services that are coming to the sector. So it's all uh, it's all interesting. Not all of it will work, but uh, you know that's what we try to get together and and um, you know everybody's going to share ideas and hopefully we can practically adopt some of this new innovation. Joe Dale's joining us, Vice President and Co-Founder of Farms.com Limited, as we look at the Precision Agriculture Conference that runs tomorrow and Wednesday at the London Convention Centre. When you talk about robotics and and the introduction of more and more technology for years and years, you can still drive by very early in the morning, sometimes very late at night, and you'll see farmers out combining. They're still out in the fields all hours of the day during the growing season. Is there ever a time when those combines will kind of do it themselves? You know, we're, we're, if you are, uh, you know, when you're driving around at night and you do see a farmer out planting, you can, you can see all the lights on the big equipment. They basically aren't steering those. Most of them are on auto steer and the, the GPS system and satellites will direct that tractor or that combine right to exactly where it should be so it's right on the row and it doesn't miss anything and so the farmer is in there but you know it's almost like uh, an airline you know they may not be flying it it would be on autopilot and so there are uh, companies out there with uh, cabless tractors cabless um, you know sprayers and and uh, and seeders and so uh, some of those products are very close to being commercialized, and so we'll see what uh, you know. We'll see what farming looks like in five or ten years down the road. But I, I wouldn't be surprised to see smaller, you know, almost swarms of smaller equipment, um, you know, in the field doing the task and all being coordinated, you know, basically through through the technology. Are we going to see bigger and bigger companies kind of taking over farming because of things like that? That's a really good question, and, and what I'm seeing is, you know, innovation bubbles up from crazy places, and so I do think a lot of the real innovation is going to come from the smaller companies, and then as they get larger and it becomes more acceptable, you know, sometimes you'll see the, the larger companies making acquisitions, um, which, you know, allows the, the, the business to scale, so... You know, it's it's surprising how many small companies are out there with really cool innovations, and you know, it's it's kind of similar to uh, what we see in, you know, in the real world. Companies like Uber and Airbnb that kind of come from nowhere, and you know, become fairly significant. Uh, um, you know, so the innovation can bubble up from anywhere. That's why we like it in London. Here, we want to we want to foster that innovation, and hopefully people's ideas and creativity will be stimulated because, you know, we get 400 people together to, you know, to talk innovation. Joe Dale's with us. Joe is the vice president and co-founder of Farms.com Limited. Joe, one last thing. Is there anything Mm -hmm. that you wish we all knew about the life of a farmer that maybe we don't? Yeah, I know. I think, I think, 
you know, just, just appreciate where your food comes from and, and the level of uh, the challenges that farmers have to overcome and the level of sophistication in their businesses. Um, and it could be something simple like you're, you know, you're being inconvenienced by a tractor going down the road. Um, you know, understand <laughs> he, he, he doesn't really want to be on that road, but he has to be. So, you know, I think uh, appreciating farmers and where your food comes from, yeah, that's something that, uh, you know, never, never gets old. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a cheerleader for, for farmers and agriculture and, uh, and anything we can do to help them. Absolutely. Well, keep up that cheerleading. We'll try and do some cheerleading ourselves. Thanks so much again for what you do and enjoy the conference over the next couple of days. Thanks, Mike. That Have is a great day. You too. Joe Dales, vice president and co-founder of Farms.com Limited. So that's what's coming into London. And we get a chance to take a look at some of the innovations in farming. You know, our population it's not getting smaller, and not just Canada. I mean, what's the talk? Ten billion dollars, and then or ten billion people, and then it suddenly starts to level off somehow. But we are using more and more farmland for more and more houses. I just, I don't know. I mean, as a farmer, you could certainly understand. Hey, somebody walks up to you and says, "Here's what I'd like to offer you for your land." I'd have trouble turning that down. But then, what do you do? Well, you have. Fewer and fewer spaces creating crops, and that means fewer and fewer people who are feeding the rest of us. You know, I don't know. We can grow meat in a Petri dish. I don't think that's the stuff we're seeing on the grocery shelves just yet. I'm not sure if that's the stuff we want to be seeing. But as far as crops go, you know, I think we're still a long way away from anything but what we have in our fields. And so to look and see what the future is, it's nice that they're coming to London to show that off. We'll take a break and be back with one more story. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. One more story has turned into a couple more stories. I want to thank Rob. About 20 minutes ago, I was talking about an article that appeared in Forbes magazine that highlights an Israeli company that believes it will have a complete cure for cancer in a year. And Rob said, well, read this one, too. So I've tweeted that link as well. And that link actually goes to a story that says the complete cancer cure story is both bogus and tragic. And goes on to say it's a fantastical claim, been dropped into the news cycle with the regularity of a super blood wolf moon for the better part of a century. And again, it goes back to the idea that cancer is not cancer. Cancer is a number of different things. And you can't just say, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll cure this. It's like one day saying, you know, we probably will cure all disease. Because we'll have these little nanobots, and we eat this pill, and the little nanobots go all through our bloodstream, and every time they see something out of whack, they take their little tools and their little hammer and their chisel, and they go, and they repair whatever it is that's out of whack. That's how you'll repair disease, according to some of the science fiction minds in our world. So... I've tweeted out both of those links because they are both very good to look at. And then I get talking about what the world is going to increase to 10 billion people and then level off. Uh, Got drawn to another article 
And this one, courtesy of Dean. So, Dean, thank you so much for emailing Mike at 980cfpl.ca. And it actually comes off Wired.com and says the world might actually run out of people. And it talks to a Canadian journalist, John Ibbotson, and a political scientist by the name of Daryl Bricker. And they have their new book, Empty Planet, which is actually coming out tomorrow. And what they do is they break down all kinds of numbers and say, what if everybody who says that the population is going to rise to 10 billion or 11 billion on our planet and then level off? What if they're wrong? What if we're actually going to go the other way? And thanks to public health, food security issues, other problems, we actually see a big decline in population. So you know what? Dean, I'm going to tweet that one out as well. So food for thought, some articles to read later on tonight. Thanks to Christian DeVino for his help. News is coming up next. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.